Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. What do you get if you divide the circumference of a pumpkin by its diameter? What? Pumpkin pie. Aha, uh-huh. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, <laughs> and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download. Everything you need to know to win your weekend gatherings. You just got a joke from Justin Simeon, creator of the forthcoming Netflix series Dear White People. He will be here later to tell y'all how to deal with a northerner who says y'all. Plus, we chat with Thomas Middleditch, star of the HBO show Silicon Valley. It's back for a fourth season this weekend. Also coming up, author Elena Passarello tells us about Mozart's encounter with the Starling. We hear the tale of pioneering American chef Jeremiah Tower, who changed the way America dines. And rock band Cold War Kids DJ your dinner party and reminisce about the time Bono didn't answer their call. How dare he? But first, small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Many Venezuelans plan to protest their government. Bill O'Reilly will not be returning to Fox News. Vice President Mike Pence is visiting South Korea at a time of high tension on the Korean Peninsula. And now for a story you might not have heard. We are here with our friend Danielle Henderson. She is a writer for the forthcoming Netflix series Maniac from director Kerry Fukunaga. Danielle, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? I'm going to be talking about a little tiny hole that led to a gruesome discovery. Ooh. Is this like an incision that someone made on someone else? It's a a hole in the ground. It gets even worse. Okay. Okay. What happened? Last year at the Garden Museum in London, they were undergoing renovations. So Mm -hmm. they're trying to, you know, two building managers are trying to fix a wonky floor. And they drilled a six-inch diameter hole in the ground which led to them finding tons of coffins underneath this oh, creepy this new exhibition space. <laughs> so what was going on in these coffins? Well, they, they found a, a, a staircase that led to a room full of 30 coffins, five of which belonged to former archbishops. Wow. It's kind of wild that a museum has unearthed museum-worthy artifacts under its own <laughs> floor. Uh, so what are they going to do with these things? Well, they've actually expanded the hole, and they've put a little piece of glass over it, and visitors will be able to view the tomb, but... But uh, you can't touch anything because it's incredibly shaky ground. And there's also something interesting that happens called coffin liquor. What? Yeah. Like most most bodies, you know, they kind of decompose into little dry bones (sighs) and... That we're used oh, to seeing. No, no. But occasionally they melt into a viscous black liquid. <laughs> oh my God. And if you touch the coffin and it tends to expand or explode, it will spray all over you. No. Oh my God. That was so disorienting. You said liquor, and I was like, hmm. And then <laughs> it turned out. It's not a brand of liquor. That's yeah. the way I get you guys. Talk, oh, mention you know liquor what? and then immediately bring up coffins and dead bodies. Wow. Danielle, I think thanks for the small talk. Yeah. Um, and now, unfortunately, we have to move on. To cocktails. <laughs> Coffin liquor. Let's just pretend that never happened. Once again, we tell you something uh. that happened this week in history and then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history's anything but a coffin. <laughs> With boobs. Ah, that sounds good. Let's start with the history. This week, back in 1800, America's oldest cultural institution was founded. Nope, it wasn't Mel Brooks. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. The Library of Congress started out as, well, just the Congress's library. Housed in Washington, D.C.'s then brand-new Capitol building, it consisted of a few hundred reference books and a whopping nine maps. But thanks to a budget of a few thousand taxpayer dollars, it soon tripled in size. Many of the library's books were bought and shipped over from England, which is ironic. 
because 14 years later, the English army briefly invaded D.C. and burned the Capitol building to the ground, along with the library. Luckily, there was an even bigger and way better library nearby, owned by a guy you may have heard of, ex-president Thomas Jefferson. It consisted of more than 6,000 volumes, all of which Jefferson offered to Congress to replace the burned ones. They accepted, and in the process, changed the library forever. See, the original library mainly consisted of books about government and legislating. But Jefferson believed in universality, that all subjects were important to consider in good governing. So his collection included tomes on science, philosophy, and literature. Some weren't even in English. And as congressional librarians expanded the holdings, they took the idea of universality to heart. Big time. Thanks to their efforts, the Library of Congress is now the biggest on Earth, comprising more than 160 million items on every imaginable subject stored on 800-plus miles of shelves. It includes books, photographs, recordings and sheet music from around the world. Oh, and the map collection's grown a little, too, from 9 to 5.1 million. So that was the history lesson. Now for the drink to go along with it. I'm on the line with Eric Holzer. He is owner of the cocktail bar in D.C. called Wisdom, which is pretty fitting in that it's in D.C. and the Library of Congress is a place where wisdom is stored. Eric, you heard the history. What drink did it inspire you to make? I chose to go with what the founders were drinking. So I decided to go with a fortified wine cocktail, which is going to be a little less strength than your typical classic cocktail. Uh, But that way you can sip it throughout the night while reading through all those thousands and thousands of publications. That's right. It'll keep your head clear while you're reading. I kind of like this idea. There you go. We're going to start with two ounces of Madeira wine. Okay. That was a very popular wine during this time period that both Adams and Jefferson definitely imbibed regularly. All right. And this is kind of like a sherry or a port? It's in the vein, and it was actually inspired by port, but it is fortified with rum. Whoa. All right. Certainly fortified. And so these guys would drink this in between creating the founding documents, I imagine. It was actually what was used to toast the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So there's a huge history with Madeira in the U.S. You know what? That explains maybe the color of that document, because it looks like someone (laughs) spilled (laughs) spilled some brown liquid all over it. Some wine stains, yes. All right. So what else is in this drink? It includes uh, one ounce of Lillet Rouge, okay, as well as half an ounce of Blue Coat Gin from Philly. All right. So what do you do with these different liquids? Do you mix them up in a glass <laughs> on the rocks? What's... Yep. We're going we're gonna to keep this simple so people can make it at home and also focus on, on reading. We're going to stir it on ice and then add a nice fat orange peel, which is really going to bring out the orange peel that is already in the Blue Coat Gin. All right. So what are you going to call this cocktail? It's called the Hayden Cocktail, named after Carla Hayden, the current uh, librarian of the Library of Congress and the first woman librarian, as well as the first African-American librarian of the Library of Congress. Eric Holzer, owner of the cocktail bar Wisdom in D.C. And people on our website, you will find a far humbler but still very useful library featuring all our cocktail recipes. It's at dinnerpartydownload.org.
All right, we've made some icky small talk, imbibed some knowledge. Now it's time to spin some music. And here to do exactly that are Nathan Willett and Matt Most of indie rock band The Cold War Kids. They've been described as a cross between The Velvet Underground and Billie Holiday. Interesting. Mm. And after a decade of making music, they hit the top of the Billboard charts with their last album single called First. The band just released their sixth record. It's called L.A. Divine. Here they are with the sentimental soundtrack. Hello, this is Nathan. And this is Mr. Most. We are Cold War Kids. Or we're half of Cold War Kids. We're actually two-fifths of Cold War Kids. And this is our dinner party soundtrack. Launching into this dinner party, of all places to start, we're, we are going to go for the jugular and a real heartstring puller. This is Fiona Apple's I Know. So be it, I'm your cold war. That's what I am so far. So few artists can be truly beautiful, jazzy, classic, sad, ballady thing that might as well be like, you know, uh, a Billie Holiday or a Nina Simone in modern context. band you have all this protection you know I walk out on stage with four other dudes and we have like a shared experience and I think to be a solo artist you bear the burden and there's nothing to hide behind there's no protection and I think that she doesn't even attempt to put on any armor which I don't recommend to any young artists because I think that's a hard a hard road but it's true and it's authentic To a certain extent, a great dinner party soundtrack is all about knowing your audience. I often feel like if I'm with like my wife and some friends, I usually play the music that I want to hear, and that is often the wrong music for what everyone else wants to hear. So that being said, I wonder if the people listening will go, hey, great song, but geez, that's so depressing for a dinner party. It's like it took you till your early 30s to realize you listen to Radiohead alone and not with people, right? <laughs> Our next track is Little House of Savages by The Walkman. It takes me right back to that time, like 2005, 2006. We became a band and we did have a lot of dinners together at our old stomping ground in Whittier. We, we lived at this place we nicknamed the Bayou. We were in the stages of playing like three or four shows a week. And I remember I, I had a, a Volvo station wagon at the time. And I remember always driving home with my amp in the car. That was always like the kind of soundtrack to going home. Cause it, yeah. yeah. Well, and there's the, there's the, somebody's waiting for me at home. It just feels like a bunch of guys walked into a room that didn't really have a song and just turned everything up and went crazy, you know. It's about the energy. Our next track is the U2 song from Aktung Baby, So Cruel. Most, to say loved the record Aktung Baby is, is not enough. Yeah, that record's kind of a way of life for me. <laughs> it, it has been since I was in junior high. You 
you can tell a lot by a person on where they stand on Actung Baby. There's a lot of people that are like, oh, no, no, I didn't keep following after that. You sort of have to look at the stage show and Bono and all of his characters and everything happening at this point and have a sense of humor with it, but then separate that from the music itself and how incredible it is. the one song they never play live. We were hanging out with Daniel Lenoir one night and he was the producer of this song So Cruel that we are such enormous fans of and Most asked him... In his and, kitchen, so it was kind of a dinner party. In his kitchen. Drinking a lot of wine. And Most asked Daniel Lenoir, how come they never played So Cruel live? And we're all there in Daniel Lenoir's kitchen and he says, I don't know. I don't know. So and he picks up his phone, pulls his phone out of his pocket and he calls Bono. Yeah. A couple times. I think Bono must have been sleeping because... Bono. Bono does not answer. We still don't know. Our last song for our dinner party is our own song, Can We Hang On, off our newest record, our sixth record. So much music can be put into the categories of finding new love and the excitement and emotions that come with that, or a breakup. But, God, this is the real stuff. This is people who've invested in each other and don't know what's up or down, and that's what music should be about. I could also apply this to kind of like the story of Cold War Kids. It's hard to do your best work, I think, after the first few years when you have that creative spark and all the energy and excitement surrounding it. So I ask myself that question about about what we're doing, and you can't get lost in all that. You keep moving forward. Nathan Willett and Matt Most of Cold War Kids. Their album, L.A. Divine, came out this month. All right, we're going to take a break, but coming up, we speak with Thomas Middleditch. He plays the shy brainiac hero of HBO's Silicon Valley, but he's got huge range as an actor. Oi, oh, I'm Hamlet. Look out, Kenneth Branagh. There we are. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, your audio arts and leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, Justin Simeon, creator of the movie-turned-Netflix series Dear White People, reminds us how lame it was to share a dorm room. Mm. And in a few minutes, we learn about the most important chef you've probably never heard of. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and that would be improviser, actor, and all-around funny fellow Thomas Middleditch. He's earned an Emmy nomination for playing Richard Hendricks, the hero of the HBO comedy series Silicon Valley. Richard is a shy computer genius who invents the greatest data compressor ever, but in the weird cutthroat world of Silicon Valley, can't quite seem to earn the billions he deserves from it. He also doesn't do so well with the ladies. Here is a clip in which he loses a girlfriend because he doesn't like the way she uses space keys when she codes. I just, I just don't understand why you, you, anyone would use spaces over tabs. Like, if it's all the same, well, why not just use tabs? 
because it could look different on other people's computers. Tabs create smaller file sizes, all right? I, I run a compression company. Trust me, I've devoted my life to minimalizing file sizes. It's what I do. I mean, I do not get why anyone would use spaces over tabs. I mean, why not just use Vim over Emacs? <laughs> I do use Vim over Emacs. Oh, God help us. The show launches its fourth season this week, so I met up with Thomas to talk about it and about all things nerdy. I welcomed him to our studios like this. And it is a pleasure to have you, sir. It is a displeasure to be here. That's terrible of you to say. <laughs> I like to come in super aggro. Oh, that's great. Okay, fine. Interview's over. Okay. I rescind my previous statements and say it is a total bummer to be here. What? <laughs> no oh, we're doing bits, man. We can't stop doing these jokes. How do I pivot from this into my actual questions now? With a solid, hey, here's the first question. Here we go. Hey-o. Uh, aren't we going to do that sound effect? First. <laughs> question. It's going to suddenly sound like Top 40. Yeah. Isn't that what NPR has to do now in order yeah. to stay afloat? <laughs> yeah. I Just think so. more air horn. Here we go. It's fun. You've really come to be identified with this character of Richard. How much is he like you? Oh, well, I, I, oh, I'm going to say something very cliche that most actors say about this kind of thing. Okay. There's probably an element of me in just about any character I've, I've ever played and will ever play, mm-hmm. including when I finally play uh, Hamlet, Hamlet, a serial killer version of Hamlet, set in 1980s London. Oi, oh, I'm Hamlet. You know, I don't. I hope Tosser. that's not true. <laughs> you know? I hope you're not a depressed maniac. If, if that's what you're saying. Well, uh, there are many sides to every coin. Actually, there's only two. Well, there's three technically with the edge, but it's it's not. I'm not, uh, hopefully not identically like Richard. I think that would be a very socially crippling way to live. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I've had my experience with uh, nerdiness and that type that is a, a programmer type. I've been to and hosted many a LAN party, local area network party. That's when you get a bunch of people together and you play games over a yeah, you network like, you create. Yeah, you physically connect your computers together. <laughs> It's a little sexy. Ooh, yeah. It's a little sublimated sexuality. If you're thinking there weren't any girls at those things, you'd be 100% correct, sir. And you're There's... also, you were kind of a D&D player, I think, in your youth. Oh, yeah. The the Venn diagram is almost a complete circle of my nerdiness. I did want to ask you, actually, what character did you play in Dungeons & Dragons? For those who don't know, the role-playing game set in a fantasy world of... Dragons and Dungeons. Yes, it's true. I kind of like those uh, wizard types. You're a wizard, really? Give me some magic and some spells. But see, uh, uh, looking at you, I would go, yeah, there's a wizard type. You're you're a slender <laughs> oh. man. You're a, a bright and intelligent man. I fit the profile of a wizard? Yeah, so I you're would sure think, not a bard? I, I w- maybe. Uh. But I would think that maybe you would have been like me when I was a, a slender, brilliant young man. <laughs> I would always want to be the fighter. The fighter. Well, I tell you, to ping your pong just there. Okay. A common question is, like, what were your favorite comedic influences growing up? And it's not as if I don't have them. I do. Monty Python, Kids in the Hall, Mr. Show, all that kind of stuff, right? But when I was a boy, my favorite things were action movies. Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Dolph Lundgren. Anyone who was muscly and had, Uh like, a at the end of the movie, they'd throw down their guns and be like, let's just fight with our fists. (laughs) And they'd smash each other. That is what I coveted most of all but do you do you miss i mean things like D, like all of this stuff is cool now being into dungeons and dragons being into coding yeah being into popular culture even yeah. in this way is now mainstream yeah you miss the time when it was a subculture a real subculture oh man you've talked to the right guy about that about really? the sort of yeah i mean 
or maybe the wrong guy because I might like get too angry. How so? Well, I mean, I, I not that I enjoyed being part of this loser club. <laughs> That it was like, oh, you have to be ultimately uncool to be yeah. a part of this. But I think what's happened is that larger entities, whatever, studios, they've realized that you can make a ton of money off of it. And so I, I, I'm relatively new to Comic-Con. I never really went there, but I've been going for the past few years. And it's essentially people lining up to watch promotional material mm-hmm. and that rabid fandom that just says to anyone peddling their wares like i'll buy it as long as it's in the wheelhouse mm-hmm. i yeah. think kind of dilutes it away i've also experienced a pretty negative aspect of this nerd culture it's like now we're now we're on top and we don't have to take any more crap anymore mm-hmm. and uh, in fact if you're not on board we're gonna get pretty angry with you and it's just sort of like did we learn nothing? Yeah, we were we were beaten up all the time. Now we have to beat up. Yeah, That's not cool. Did we did we learn nothing? It just reminds me that we're all human. It's not like nerds are the special sensitive breed. It's just we're just human beings that liked a different thing. But in the end, we're just dark little chimps with suits on, <laughs> <laughs> dragging our butts along the ground and throwing banana peels at everybody. In a way, that's kind of what the show is about, right? I mean, it, it, <laughs> is it about it, well, being chimps? No, not about the chimp part. Oh, okay, okay. But the idea that these are these awkward antisocial guys in a lot of ways, but they just happen to be around at a point where they could become the owner owners of the world they could become billionaires true i mean you know it's i think now having encountered a lot of these people like uh, the the super bright programmer types what i've noticed is that they've kind of got this burden of intelligence that they have to deal with i mean they are hyper smart and i think it comes potentially at a price with sociability potentially but also it's you know if you had to talk if you had to carry on a conversation with an ant all day it's it's tiring, I think. Everybody is uh, on some level a cut intellectually beneath them. Yeah, and I don't even think they approach those situations with a lot of judgment. I have conversations with them, and they're they're not like, ugh, what a dummy. It's just they're racing at 300 miles an hour, and I'm at 80, and totally comfortable with being at the speed limit. I know that they spend a lot of time on the set of your show yeah. trying to get the you know the math right. There's a guy from Stanford that apparently checks all the equations. Yeah. Have you actually processed any of this stuff and become you know smarter can you code much better now than you mm. did when you started the show? i have no need to make any more websites thankfully mm. what's been more interesting and what i actually have a higher degree of interest in is the investor side of it all you know the business side well yeah it's like you get a little bit of pocket change by being on a tv show and now you're like well i gotta go do something with it but this is kind of unique in that through the show i've got direct access to Silicon Valley and various VCs and funds and angel investors and all kinds are of you, stuff. Are you actually like getting advice on investing? Well, here from... and there. I mean, it's a steep learning curve, but it's been interesting. What kind of things are you interested in investing? <laughs> well, one was aviation, just because I've always been like a big flight nerd and I've got my pilot's license. Really? You know, I think there's room for innovation in general aviation and then also commercial aviation. You, you know, Boom, did... the supersonic startup that's kind of like uh, the Concorde 2.0 that just got funded and is taking off. You see my pun? Oh, my gosh. Um, and there's a, another company called Wright Electric who are trying to do short-haul commercial flights with a completely electric drivetrain, powertrain, power okay. plant. Sure. Um, I'm in radio. Yeah. I'm, and then, uh, I'm kind of like an ant right now to you, aren't I? <laughs> I feel yeah, like and, an ant. Buddy, I want to squash. But listen, we have uh, a question we ask everyone on the show. You've kind of already answered it, but I'll pose it to you anyway. Tell us something we don't know. Oh. 
Which can be about anything, a piece of trivia. Well, I already told you I'm investing. Mm-hmm. I worked at one point, here's a fun fact, I worked as an entertainer with Second City on a cruise line. Oh, that's cool. Norwegian Cruise Lines has a deal with Second City where if you go on some of their mainstay ships, you'll see uh, Second, Silly, Second Silly's comedy <laughs> show review. And at one point, I was a player on there. I think this this is more, it's not my, necessarily my favorite memory because that's probably for a podcast and not public radio, if you oh, know what I'm saying. Oh, my gosh. But <laughs> one thing I thought was kind of funny and very indicative of me. So we, for the first half of the cruise ship, we ported out of New York City and went to like Bahamas, Bermuda, Norwegian Cruise Line's private island. Oh, my God. It sounds nice. It was kind of like, you know, those Sunday uh, cartoons where it's just like a mound of sand with a coconut tree on there? (laughs) It was that plus a bar. (laughs) So that was kind of like a summer vacation vibe. And since it was pouring out in New York, we got a like Jersey, Bronx, Queens folk. And they're all very nice. And um, you were anonymous until you did the show. And then they'd recognize you and they'd be like, oh, suck it, city. Let me buy you a shot. Unbelievable. This guy, when's he going to be on SNL? Unbelievable. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? It was that and like very debaucherous. It was pretty wild. Cut to halfway through, we switch up the cruise. It's the fall tour to watch the leaves change. And we go up to like Bar Harbor, uh, Newfoundland, Quebec City and stuff. And... Mm -hmm. Every, most people are retirees. They played Andrews Sisters on the PA, like. I mean, it was a totally different thing, and I liked the second one more because I was like, the scenery. Oh God, yeah. if you haven't been, and it feels classy. The Andrews oh, Sisters makes anything classy. It was a longer tour too, so you just you really get to soak it in. I thought I thought what you were going to say was, and they change it, and it's fall, and it's mostly retirees, and they're like, hey, look at this guy, <laughs> come over here, I'm going to buy a shot. It's just a bunch of older. It's exactly the same. Yeah, it's just all background from the movie Casino. The Jim Jam Jump is a jumping jive. Makes you get your kicks on the mellow side. Yep, yep. Thomas Middleditch, star of Silicon Valley. It launches its fourth season this week. And people, there's a lot more of that interview we didn't have room for here. Oh, yes. But when that happens, we air our favorite bits on podcast-only bonus episodes. You won't want to miss them. Subscribe to the Dinner Party Download on your favorite podcast app. Don't be that icaroo. Get hip and follow through. And now the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So, Rico, in the past decade or so, chefs have become celebrities. Of course. And pretty much every cuisine or ingredient has been the subject of a TV show or a book. That's right. Last year, there was a cookbook called Acorns and Cattails. (laughs) Exactly. It's pretty good, too. That's true. It's not bad. Uh, So it's kind of remarkable that pioneering chef Jeremiah Tower isn't better known. But a new documentary from filmmaker Lydia Tanaglia sets out to change that. It's called The Last Magnificent. Okay. And it profiles Tower's role in changing what and how Americans eat. He started cooking in the 70s at Alice Waters Chez Panisse, a restaurant renowned for starting the farm-to-table movement. Yeah. It had only been open for a year when Tower arrived. I asked Lydia what happened next. Into this mix of these uh, 1960s, you know, hippie cafe vibe, into this walks this unbelievably romantic figure, you know, like straight out of a friggin' film with his ascot (laughs) and his his incredible kind of amalgam of an accent. You know, he was raised in England and Australia and and the U.S., so he had this incredible accent. And he sort of comes in with this flair and this panache and um, just rolled up his sleeves and he set to task. And he, he wasn't formally trained. He hadn't gone to culinary school. You know, he wasn't really a chef. He just had experienced the world at a very young age, had been exposed to a lot in Europe and basically all over the world. And he was kind of taking what 
he had experienced and read about. And he took that and he, he sort of applied it to the task at hand. And that's where Shea Pinney started to take on a different tone and, and vibe from its original concept. So Panisse became a hit, but then Jeremiah and Alice Waters had a falling out, um, partially because he claims she never credited him with all the work he did on the recipes in the menu. <laughs> I mean, you know, they had a really tumultuous, wonderful, crazy, complicated, loving, hating, jealous, ego-driven relationship. And I think it, it probably came from both sides. And I think a lot of people in the films correctly describe it as there is this chemistry or synergy between these two people. There was sort of a confluence of, you know, forces. I would say just knowing and studying Jeremiah's career, where he came from, what influenced him, that he was really able to bring very clear structure yeah. to something that was structure, maybe structureless. And I think that he really does need to be credited for that kind of influence. Well, there's one point in the documentary where you're interviewing him now, and he says, I know that I should forgive Alice and uh, I should be over, you know, what happened. And at one point he says, I should swallow my pride, but frankly, it's too big. (laughs) And it sounds like he isn't over it. Yeah, I think that that line is so telling. It tells tells you so much. It really tells you so much about like what Jeremiah's greatness, but I'd say equally what his what his tragic flaws are as well. Hubris? Hubris. I think hubris, <laughs> arrogance, tremendously yeah. strong, powerful ego, they all derive from a place of artistic vision. Mm. I would say that. His artistic vision is unbelievably clear. But I think in some ways, like every great hero, you know, there is that tragic flaw that that uh, yeah. <laughs> that is the other side of the equation. And I think, you know, as many people say in the film, he was ostensibly written out of that story of the history of the American culinary revolution because, you know, that hubris pisses people off. Well, a few years after leaving Panisse, he would push the American food movement forward again with the opening of Stars, the, his pioneering smash hit restaurant in San Francisco, Talk about stars and and what Jeremiah did there. Ruth Rachel in the film says, you know, stars really became the imprint for what the modern American restaurant came to be and what we really frankly know it as today, which is sort of the restaurant as seen. You know, it's it's Mm. like the chef suddenly comes out of the kitchen. This sort of charismatic central character is both the strong voice uh, in the back of the house and he's also the great MC at the front of the house. And the restaurant itself really becomes entertainment. You don't just go there to eat. You go there to see, be seen, be in the the buzz, the swirl. There was like sort of this, you know, 50-foot bar that was like this just buzzing with activity. There was a piano in the center of it all. Um, It was the first time, too, that the um, it was an open kitchen. I mean, Mario Batali says, all the restaurants that I have created in some way have been influenced or impacted by what Jeremiah created at Stars. You know that 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 kind of energy. So Stars kind of changed how we look at restaurants in the United States. And your doc has lots of fun footage of the '80s in San Francisco, which is which is a real hoot. But you know, actually, my favorite part of this work is your focus on his childhood and how that influenced his relationship to food. Can you tell us a little bit about 
Jeremiah's upbringing? I mean, frankly, just to be, you know, t- totally straightforward, he came from, like, moneyed neglect <laughs> because mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. you know, he was certainly brought up in, a, in an atmosphere of uh, incredible wealth and travel and fine restaurants, fine fine hotels. And um, his father was an executive at this um, uh, company that created sort of sound systems for movie theaters all around the world. So they've traveled mm. everywhere. The mother, I think, came from wealth. But I think emotionally, he was kind of an afterthought. Well, he filled that emotional vacuum with, at least partially, with food. Yeah, I mean, he said, you know, when I think about it, food was really my my best friend. Food was my companion because they would be going from place to place, hotel to hotel. And, you know, he would have this sort of experience of of these menus. And, and to him, they were like, as he describes it, like storybooks. And, mm. you know, he said that was one consistency that he could always count on from place to place was that experience of sitting down at a table and being able to order these foods and sort of try new things. And so that became something that he related to, again, as a sort of consistent um, sort of emotional salve, if you will, yeah. you know, from, from getting shuttled from place to place and hotel to hotel. And, you know, he related to food in, in a very emotionally visceral way that Maybe a lot of people don't. Lydia Tanaglia, her new documentary about Chef Jeremiah Tower is called The Last Magnificent, and it hits screens this weekend. Note, it features excessive amounts of champagne consumption. You should take two aspirin before viewing. (laughs) And stay hydrated. Folks, Mm -hmm. coming up, director Justin Simeon, and we learn about the time Mozart shared songwriting credit with a bird when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear about the time Mozart met his teeny, tiny, feathered match. But first, <laughs> let's learn some manners. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and answering them this week is writer-director Justin Simeon. In 2014, he won a special jury prize at Sundance for his debut film, Dear White People, about a group of black students struggling to define their identities at a mostly white private university. We talked to him about it back then, and now that film has evolved into a Netflix series that launches next week. So it seemed like a great time to revisit our conversation. Justin has said that he himself was, quote, a black face in a sea of white in college. The characters he created for the film all deal with that situation very differently. We wondered which character was he. Um, I definitely, I started school Lionel. The shy journalism student. Yeah, I was really intimidated by the other black kids in the Black Student Union. Uh, They just seemed so much cooler and blacker than me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But by the time I I left, I was much more Sam. I was much more militant. I found, you know, I found my place within the Black Student Union. And Sam is a more activist. Yeah, she's she's more of of the revolutionary uh, in the film. But you've said actually that you, you emerged from college more like her, but that that wasn't you either. No, no. I think it probably took me until maybe last year to even begin the process of sort of like integrating, you know, all of the different personalities in my head. That's kind of my question is, I mean, the movie deals with that a lot. Absolutely. Each character in the movie behaves like a different kind of black person depending on the group that they're with. And they're trying to unite all these personalities. How did you do it? Um, 
you know, and I even said that that happened, but I don't even know if that's happening. I made a movie called Dear White People <laughs> and um, <laughs> kind of stepping into being like, a, I guess, like a representative for all black people, which, I, you know, no one person can be. So but, I don't even know if that's true. <laughs> Maybe it'll take me another 10 years. But the movie makes that clear. I mean, what's interesting about the movie is you don't present answers. You ask a lot of interesting questions. Yeah. None of these identities seem to fit right with these folks. You're right. I'm brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was going to say. And that's the end of our interview. Okay, so, great. You're awesome. Congrats on the film. Hashtag Justin's brilliant. Wait, was there an arrogant character in the movie? Because I didn't remember that. <laughs> I'm, you know what? I'm way too neurotic to have an ego like that. I, I, every time I walk into a screening of the movie, I, I think this is the one where they turn. Yeah, like, where they, they figure me out. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to being an artist. This I is think. the one where they throw fruit at the screen. I don't know where <laughs> they'd find fruit. but All right. Well, speaking of extreme conflict, this movie climaxes at a party that's thrown by the White Run student humor paper where attendees are supposed to basically dress up as black stereotypes, supposedly satirically, but it's obviously totally offensive. It blew our minds to find out that these kind of parties have happened multiple times on campuses in the last few years. Yeah and, yeah, and there's some people who see the movie and it, like, blows their mind that these things happen. And then there's other kids, you know, college kids that are kind of going through it now that see the movie and are like, I know it's a satire, but this is literally my day-to-day life. <laughs> and it's so shocking. And this is at institutions that you would never expect these sort of shenanigans to be going on. Exactly. And you kind of, you, I know, research these shenanigans, yes. so to speak, <laughs> as you were writing this screenplay. What is going through people's heads when they're throwing these parties? It's just a lot of ignorance as to the fact that it was even offensive. I mean, people Mm. were genuinely bewildered that anyone took offense because, you know, of course we're not racist because, you know, we have a black friend and we voted for Obama or whatever the case may be. I bought the Beyonce album. I don't know what it is, but like, (laughs) you know, they they don't feel like they're racist because they're in this sort of closed cultural loop. And to Mm. them, they're paying homage or they're celebrating or they're just kicking back and they're having fun. I mean, how many questionable Cinco de Mayo parties have we all been to? (laughs) You know, it's the same. It's the same thing. It's true. I get the nachos and the guacamole, but why do you have a fake mustache on, sir? (laughs) Speaking of bad behavior, we've got some questions from our audience. You ready to answer these? Let's do it. All right. Here's something from Ben via our website. Ben writes, I recently moved away from the United States. Whenever I'm at a dinner party, someone always inquires about my race because of my American accent. When I reply I'm Vietnamese, my actual ethnicity, often people look shocked and will say I don't look like it and that I must be something else. How do I reply? Wow. Yeah. There's nothing more annoying than being asked, what are you? (laughs) (laughs) You know, people have asked me that question, which I think is hilarious because it's like, you know, I'm black, obviously. But then they want to get into it. And it's like, yeah, that's the whole thing about being black is I have no way of knowing like which country (laughs) the blackness comes from. But I I mean, I think you sort of turn it around on the asker and say, well, what are you? Mm. And when they tell you they're Italian or Irish or whatever white people say when you ask them what race they are, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you have to make them defend it. <laughs> yeah. Or you yeah, you should say I don't think so. No, yeah, really? I don't, I don't know. know about it. I don't know about that. I don't see it. All right. This next question comes from Yolanda in Queens and she writes, I'm currently living in a dorm. My school is a system where rooms are assigned by lottery and I got stuck in a double. I can't have any company without disturbing my roommate. One of my friends was assigned a single but doesn't need it. She has her own apartment and goes over to her significant others when she's at school. Wow. Am I justified in feeling this is unfair? Yes. 
You are just, you should break into her apartment and have your dates there, I think. All right. I feel like no dorm situation ever is good. I was just going to say, this is just such a, it brings back such memories. Oh, same. Oh my God. You have no idea. Oh, do tell. I never had a great (laughs) dorm situation. No offense to anyone I may have lived with. Where did you go Um, to school? I went to school at Chapman University. Okay. And there was a lot of weed smoke in my first... (laughs) Which is fine. I just, you know, I found it difficult to do homework. There was like four of us in there. Uh, I remember one time one of my sweet mates challenged me, this blonde, blue-eyed kid, because he uh, felt he was blacker than me because he could crip walk and I couldn't. <laughs> and that, was, that was an awkward moment in our shared bathroom. <laughs> God, what is wrong with people? I don't know. It gets, you know, it's life. We're, we're thrust together. We crash into each other. It's mm. part of the learning experience. That's the other thing we could say is that you just deal with it and you're learning yeah. from college what you're supposed to learn, which is, you know, in life things are unfair. Which is live alone. <laughs> yeah. So there you go, Yolanda. I think the advice is to break into your friends single. You should totally break in. Here's something from Chris in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And keep in mind, North Carolina, this person is from. Okay. Chris writes, I have a friend who says y'all constantly, and she isn't from the South. What do you think? Is that okay? (laughs) I am obsessed with this friend, whoever... Is it, it's she, right? It's, it's, it's a, a she. He's not from the South. That's good. I, I feel like I see this more and more often. I'm not sure where that comes from. Just people saying y'all. I'm from the South, so I say y'all. It's a word that comes in handy, though, right? You guys is gender specific. Yeah, you guys. Yeah, that's specific. Not... So maybe it's just a shortcut. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, they put ketchup in their eggs in the South, too, and that was a good idea. It was. It is a good idea. Um, so maybe this is just a good idea. But it also depends on how she says it. Like, if it's a really awkward y'all and you know she's just forcing it, that is a bit irritating. Yeah. Like, hey, y'all. Well, there are scenes in your movie where the characters at the all-white kind of privileged house are speaking <laughs> with one of the black characters, and they change their language, right? That is true. That's the worst, I have to say. Like, when, when a well-intentioned, very liberal, nice white person comes up to me and is like, what's up, bro? And I know he does not greet other people like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what? I, I get that you're trying to make me feel relaxed and comfortable in your presence. You're doing the opposite. But it's offensive, and don't do that. <laughs> By the way, one other thing that you could do here is that, Chris, in Chapel Hill, you should start using the uh, Pittsburgh term. I'm from Pittsburgh. Okay. And the Pittsburgh version of y'all is yins. Yins? Yeah, no, no. Y-I-N-Z. No. Yep. That's, I don't even understand the etymology of yins. Yeah, like, you, how does it yeah, get to be yins? I think it's you ones. I think it's what you say when you have beer in your mouth and a sandwich <laughs> in your mouth at the same time. Story of my life. Chris, y'all figure it out yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> this next question comes from Tish. Tish writes, my boss recently purchased a scented candle that smells like maple syrup. <laughs> we should just end right there. Done. <laughs> Done. Quit your job. Yes, yeah. exactly. You're yeah. in the right, Tish. You're in the right. The scent is very strong for an office, and it gives me a headache. Not to mention, it smells just awful. She's super <laughs> chipper and excited about her candle. Do I say something? Super chipper is the more offensive yes. part of this. About her candle. Chipper about her maple syrup that, candle. Uh, oh, man. I think you passively, aggressively suggest. I think that's what you do in this situation. Mm. Suggest. Man, I have a headache. Must be the smell mm. of maple syrup. I think you go further. <laughs> sabotage the candle. You should break oh, the candle. You should spill totally. coffee on the candle. Or you replace the candle in the dead of night. That's a super passive aggressive move. Just suddenly it's a different candle. <laughs> what would you been, replace it with? I don't know. Something with a... No scent. I, I feel like anything food related I can't have as a scent in my yeah. house because yeah. I can't eat it. Like, that's not right. <laughs> if I walk into my house and it smells like cookies, 
What is the point of that? Maybe you could just pile some aspirin on top of the candle so it can't be lit. <laughs> I think Tish needs a new job. Yeah, I think the bigger thing here is that Tish is ready to leave. And we support oh. you in that, Tish. Follow your dreams, Tish. Uh, here's our last question. It comes from Sylvia via Facebook. We don't know where she's from. This kind of has some bearing on the, sh- on the film. How do you suggest correcting someone's bad grammar or incorrect pronunciation of words? Coco, one of the characters in your film, is correcting someone on the <laughs> correct use of the term weave. That's true. Um, I don't know. I feel like unless you're a school teacher, yeah. I don't yeah. know if you should, you know, I get it. I know it's annoying to some people, but language is fluid and... Wait, this is... The, we're, we're speaking to a public radio audience. <laughs> oh my God, I'm alienating everyone. Yeah, yes. this is what they do. This is like you're, <laughs> you're saying their favorite hobby yes. is wrong. Please come see my movie anyway, but there's lots of incorrect grammar in my film. Can you... Could you maybe guilt them into seeing your movie some other way? Maybe that'll... Well, here's the thing. If you don't see it, you're a racist. So. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. That's the... <laughs> I, that's the sorry about that. Justin Simeon, everyone. <laughs> Thanks for telling our audience how to behave. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Justin Simeon, his Netflix series Dear White People launches next week. It's garnering some great reviews. Check it out. And folks, if you would like to garner some great advice, send us your etiquette questions. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. And now, time to eavesdrop. In each chapter of her book, Animal Strike Curious Poses, Elena Passarello tells a different true story about an animal that made its mark on history. Today we overhear her read from a chapter called Vogelstar, co-starring Mozart. Whistle a little Mozart to a starling in a cage. If it knows humans as creatures that sing and are sung to, the bird will shut its beak. It will arch its starling neck, bending toward your puckered lips, It might bob its dark head back and forth at the Mozart line you've sent out, the dotted pops of Papagino Papagina, or the crystalline shards of the Rondo for glass harmonica. And though a caged starling is chatty during the day and downright garrulous at night, at the moment it locks in on your Mozartian whistle, the little bird will only blink, aiming its entire soundless self toward the music coming from you. Note how it nods along with your tuneful body as if to say yes. Yes, I have it. But a starling is no parrot. Do not expect that when you whistle twinkle twinkle, you'll immediately hear a little star in return. And when it does spit back whatever Mozart you fed it, it will be on a starling's zany terms. A theme from the Hofner Symphony punctuated with guttural warbles. Or the famous adagio from his clarinet concerto mixed into an uncanny impression of your dishwasher. The queen of the night aria sung in a screech worthy of a bee gee. A few days after that, your line of Mozart will come from the birdcage as a barely recognizable string of filched sounds, all sung together in a line so arrhythmic, it's catchy. You'll hear Mozart, your own voice, the white noise of the house you live in, plus the recesses of starling instinct. Twinkle, bzzit, twink, hi, how are you? Doorbell, cool, checker, 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 little, wheat, wheat, little, a craning smoke alarm, lit, hi, how are you, tall, twinkle, little, that Bee Gees screech again, star. This will then be repeated with the maddening obsessiveness of an EDM concert. So what kind of murmur began that spring day in Vienna when a 28-year-old Mozart jaunty in his garnet coat and gold-rimmed cap, strolled into his shop to whistle at a starling in a cage. 
That bird must have zeroed in on Mozart's mouth as the man whistled the 17-note opening phrase from his recent piano concerto. Mozart's melody riffs in G on a simple line heard in many a Volkslied. So the starling might have been hearing similar tunes from other shoppers that whole month. Or perhaps Mozart himself had been in a few times and had whistled the line enough for the bird to learn it. But no matter how the starling got the song, on May 27, 1784, it spat that tune right back at the tunesmith. But not without taking some liberties first. Mozart apparently loved this edit because he bought that bird on sight. For good measure, he drew a little treble staff in his expense book and scored the starling's tweaks under the note of purchase. And under the last measure, an acclamation scribbled in the maestro's quick hand, Das war schön. That was beautiful. There is no other live animal purchase in Mozart's expense book, and no more handwritten melodies. This note of purchase is special. Of all the things Johann Christusom Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart brought to human sound, the most important might be his sense of surprise. His compositions, while almost always law-abiding, are full of trickery. Leading tones that drop away from roots, accidentals that jar the listening mind from its diverted stupor, minuets too syncopated to dance to. And these caprices are what made him a star. As the old German saying goes, the music of Bach gave us God's word, Beethoven gave us God's fire, but Mozart's gave God's laughter to the world. So the starling's playful G-sharp must have felt more than schön to the maestro and worth more to him than 34 damn Kreutzer. Think of it. He'd whistled a tune to a thing with feathers, and then the animal bobbed its little head and whistled back to him a glorious, deviant, Mozartian wink. This wasn't just shun, this was game recognizing game. It's difficult to imagine a more priceless moment. One of the greatest thinkers in history bonding with a bird brain. Elena Passarello reading from her new book, Animals Strike Curious Poses. That passage was edited for broadcast. And that title was taken from Prince. Uh. That's the Dinner Party download for this week, folks. Next week, we've got a jam-packed show for you featuring the musician Feist and New York radio kingpin Charlemagne the God. If you don't know him, you're in for a treat. Indeed. Thank you to senior producer Jackson Musker, associate producers Krista Ripple and James Kim, associate digital producer Christina Lopez, and intern Emerald Douglas. Also, shout out to Marketplace Weekend host Lizzie O'Leary for that whistling you just heard. Nicely done. Excellent. Folks, if you haven't yet, do subscribe to our podcast. You'll get our weekly show plus bonus episodes. We just put out one featuring SNL star Sashir Zameda. You should go check it out. Please do. Till next time, bon appetit.